0: Welcome to the SIFMA Podcast, where we discuss what matters most to the capital markets. SIFMA recently held our annual State of the Industry Briefing for members of the media. We discussed a wide range of topics, pivotal moments from this past year, as well as what we're looking to in the year ahead on behalf of our members. Here for you
1: today are excerpts from the presentation by our President and CEO, Ken Benson, and our 2020 Board Chair, Joe Sweeney of Ameriprise Financial.
0: Yesterday, uh, our economic advisory roundtable released its biannual economic forecast and compared with the June survey, uh, the uh, roundtable increased their estimates for GDP growth uh, by uh, 0.5 percent for 2019 to a median forecast of 2.2 percent on a fourth quarter over fourth quarter basis. For 2020, however, they lowered their forecast by 0.1 percent to 1.8 percent on a fourth quarter over fourth quarter basis. Uh, U.S. trade policy, business confidence in the U.S. and private credit market conditions were among the most important considerations in the change as they view that as posing the uh, greatest downside risk to U.S. expansion. Economists uh, expect real – the economics roundtable expected real personal consumption growth to come in at 2.6 percent at the end of 2019 and then soften to its longer-run trend around 2.1 percent in 2020. And on the labor market side, uh, uh, the uh, roundtable expects the unemployment rate to tick up slightly to 3.7% in 2020 <clears throat> after an expected 0.2% decline in 2019 to 3.6. Half the respondents believe that the Fed's next rates will, will be move will be up, while 44% believe it will be down and 6% uh, believe that they'll hold for the foreseeable future. Uh, and this stands in contrast to Uh, uh, The mid-year survey when 65% predicted down, 35% predicted up. Just some highlights in terms of market activity. Uh, We saw uh, equity issuance up 6.4. I'm sorry, equity issuance down 6.4% year over year, uh, although equity market cap was up 5.9%. Global market equity cap was up uh, slightly year-to-date over 18. In terms of of shares traded on U.S. equity markets per day, that was down 0.6%. Uh, uh, at at about an average of 7.1 billion shares traded daily uh, year-over-year. IPO value um, was down 6.2 percent. The number of IPO deals were down uh, uh, 24.6 percent, but again, as we know, there's a sort of volatile nature in IPO deals coming to market. Um, In terms of fixed income issuance, that was up 20 percent year-over-year. That is up 20 percent, 20.1 percent year-over-year. Um, and fixed income uh, outstanding is up 4.2% year-over-year. Year. Um, uh, likewise, uh, securities outstanding globally, uh, 18 over 17 is up as well. And lastly, uh, in looking at retirement assets, year-over-year uh, uh, year year, uh, are down just 1.3%. Um, I would note as well that uh, SIFMA has uh, recently undertaken a project with Cerulli Associates looking at the uh, retail investment market um, uh, in terms of its breadth, scope, size, uh, uh, how uh, how in, how individual investors access the retail market, how they engage with financial advisors. Um, that project is underway now. We're not done with it yet, but it's something that we will be releasing um, in the new year. Uh, but I do want to just hit a couple of highlights. Um, from that uh, as, as we're doing this, the report. And it's a combination of, of looking at, at, at different types of data that's available on, on, on the type of market as well as surveying of investors. Um, so just a few quick tidbits uh, in advance of, of getting to a final report. 35% of investors report being self-directed while 30, versus 30, 39% are heavily relying on an advisor. Uh, Investors choosing to use an advisor uh, report that they are overwhelmingly pleased with their decision, starting with the overall satisfaction on a one to seven scale for satisfaction on average. Investors rate their advisor at 6.1% with 80% uh, scoring at six or seven. From a cost perspective, 77% of those surveyed who use advisors believe they're they're worth the expenses versus versus 4% who do not. And finally, clients are eager to share their advisors with friends and family, 75% of them indicate they would be highly likely to recommend their advisor versus 4% who prefer not to. Um, lastly, uh, before I get to some regulatory stuff, I do want to point out um, uh, something that we began uh, probably about 18 months ago, um, and uh, I'm sure we pummeled all of your email box e- emails with this but um, something that we think is very important is is uh, with Katie Colchin as our director of research we developed uh, what we call Sithma insights and this is where we've been trying to you know, put a spotlight both on um, different uh, uh, segments of the capital markets business um, as well as uh, reporting out from our various conferences that we have those are all posted on our on our website and uh I would encourage you to take a look at them, and, and these are some things that we'll be updating on a regular basis. But uh, um, you know, of some of the recent things we've looked at are you know who owns stocks in America, ETFs, ramifications of financial transaction tax, SOFR, uh, uh, equity and fixed income market structure, and then impact of prudential uh, regulation on capital markets activity. Uh, so anyway, I would encourage you to take a look at that. Let me just run through. Uh, um, Pretty quickly, uh, and and because I want I want to save t- same time first off for my chairman, and then also save time for uh, for questions. Sort of looking at uh, uh, legislative, re- regulatory, and legislative issues we've been focused on in the past year. What we see in the uh, in the offing for this year, probably the most significant in 2019 from a regulatory perspective, uh, uh, not necessarily in order of significance, um, would be uh, the revisions to the Volcker uh, Proprietary Trading Rule. This is something that uh, Cifma and our members have long been eager to see addressed, because uh, we felt that the Volcker Rule, uh, uh, as originally crafted, was unnecessarily complex. Um, and had uh, many unintended consequences on market activity that was otherwise um, uh, permitted under the statute. And this was a, a view that was not just, you know, was not just SIFMA's view, but was shared as well by many policymakers, including many policymakers who were involved in crafting the original uh, Volcker rule. Um, we believe that the Uh, The rule is adopted by the regulators earlier this year is a very reasoned approach Uh, It in no way, uh, you know, it it, it, it provides more clarity uh, for dealers uh, in how they facilitate customer demand and address their own uh, uh, um, their own uh, 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 Asset and liability management Um, and uh, Contrary to what some have said and uh, in, in, none of our members feel that it, in any way, uh, it, 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 nor could it, um, uh, uh, you know, expand any activity beyond what Congress had, had, Congress had otherwise prohibited in the statute. So based upon our review and our members review, review we think this is a reasoned approach that will provide more clarity. Uh, and so we're, we're glad that, that the regulators took that step. Likewise, uh, Reg BI, uh, was a major rulemaking, uh, probably the, I think the biggest, certainly the the biggest rulemaking that the SEC did, uh, 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 under, under Jay Clayton, in our view, um, this is a substantial rule, something that, uh, SIFMA's been engaged in in for many years, something that we've long felt the SEC should do, should have done, um, uh, you know, our members report to us that, they are spending uh, tremendous time, effort, and resource on uh, moving to implementation of this rule, which will, which is practically, well, which is uh, uh, legally in effect, but practically in effect and uh, subject to compliance in June of, of the coming year. Um, it is a uh, it is a it is a robust rule uh, uh, that um, will require a very heavy lift on our members. Um, but, some, again, something that we think is, is the right thing to do for clients. Uh, likewise, uh, the ETF rule that went through was very positively received. And then uh, I just note, um, among other things, uh, the uh, extension of no action relief uh, with respect to MIFID II impact on, uh, on um, research, uh, while not resolving that issue, um, uh was some, something that was uh, our members felt very strongly about uh, Not to, in, in order to not curtail uh, access to research. Those were sort of some high-level big things, uh, you know, other, a lot of other stuff that happened throughout the year uh, that I wanted to point out. Looking forward, uh, there's quite a long list. Uh, in the fiduciary space, uh, as many people know, uh, we have a number of states that uh, are seeking to impose their own. Fiduciary duty with respect to uh, retail brokerage and investment advisory. Um, our our primary view on that is that the states should uh, let the SEC move forward with its uh, its imp- implementation of its rule at the federal level, which Congress has really long uh, 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 deemed as the as the appropriate approach here. Um, and furthermore. We are very concerned that some of these state efforts uh, will uh, lead to a patchwork of rules, which, at the end of the day, will uh, have a negative impact on retail investors, and in other cases, on the municipal bond market, and uh, and conceivably even on some other institutional markets and how these rules are, are are written. So we will we're spending a lot of time on that related to Volcker. Uh, we expect that the uh, uh, Regulators charged with the Volcker Rule will put out a proposal addressing um, the funds portion of Volcker. Uh, you may recall when they put out their initial Volcker Rule proposal, they had, they had a, a, a detailed proposal with respect to proprietary trading and metrics, but, but with respect to funds, uh, more questions. So they, we and others provided robust comments on that, but they needed to do another rulemaking, so we expect to see that either by the end of the year or early next year. Uh, in the, in, uh, related to Reg BI, we expect the Department of Labor to uh, put out a proposal that will um, address their, how ERISA conforms uh, or cohabitates, if you will, with, uh, with uh, uh, Reg BI. Uh, we've been told that will be out before the end of the calendar year, so you know, we, with the 27 days left or whatever, you know, we'll, see, we'll see where that is, but that will be a major rulemaking. Um, we believe that uh, we understand that the Federal Reserve is looking at changes to the CCAR process and in particular an issue that our members are interested in is how, uh, how CCAR uh, take, uh, looks at the trading book. Uh, we we recently submitted a study looking at the impact of uh, uh, you know the global market shock and uh, and um, uh, 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 losses you know losses rate, uh, uh, impact of the uh, of the uh, uh, counter uh, counterparty defaults um, and this is something that we think the Fed is going to look at the overall CCAR approach and how they do it uh, in the swap space I, 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 as before I get the swaps. We also believe, based upon what we've heard from the Fed, and, and this, and, and probably you have heard as well, that they will put out a proposal to uh, implement Basel III, as well as probably the net stable funding ratio and the federal uh, and and, and the, uh, fundamental review of the trading book, and and I think uh, I think Vice Chairman Quarles may have said this yesterday in testimony before the House. They intend to kind of put all this together with any, any adjustments across all of those rules. So that will be a major rulemaking that we'll be, we'll be focused on as well uh, uh, next year. In the swap space, um, the, uh, 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 you know, the regulators are, 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 you know, put out a proposal dealing with margin for interaffiliate swaps, which we think is the, is the right approach. Um, and likewise, we and so we'll see, we think that will be resolved in the early next year. And then uh, we anticipate that the, uh, that the um, uh, CFTC uh, and the SEC will move forward in finalizing rules with respect to cross-border treatment of swaps, uh, which will be a, a major rulemaking. Um, uh, just a, two other, three other things I'd mention, two other rulemakings I would mention. Um, uh, and this came up at our annual meeting a couple of weeks ago. But we expect the SEC to, uh, uh, based upon their comments, to look at um, potential changes to Reg NMS and market structure, which has long been a priority of SIFMA. Um, and uh, they have already been issuing dealing with market data, uh, which we think is appropriate. Um, so so we, we expect to see something on that. And then uh, there's a pending exemptive relief proposal related to municipal advisors, uh, which, uh, uh, which we have strong uh, concerns about. Uh, we can talk about that in more detail. We'll be filing a comment letter on that uh, next week. We think that the SEC is going down the wrong path on that with respect to the impact on investors and the market. Um, and then I'd uh, just also like to mention Um, In in the uh, repo markets, obviously, uh, there's been a tremendous amount of volatility in those markets with, uh, you know, weekly and daily uh, injection of liquidity by the Federal Reserve. This is something that SIPMA follows closely with our Primary Dealers Committee. Um, There are, in our, you know, our, our collective view, there are cyclical and structural issues at play here, and that's been shared as well, I believe, by policymakers. And uh, this is something that uh, well, we are monitoring very closely. Uh, we believe that, uh, uh, and this was again discussed, I think at this hearing yesterday, but uh, we think it's incumbent upon policymakers to take a very hard look at uh, some of the structural issues, particularly some of the capital <coughs> liquidity rules, which we think may be creating an unintended, unintended incentive uh, to trap uh, liquidity in what is otherwise very what are what are otherwise very robust balance, bank balance sheets, uh, that uh, uh, and therefore uh, impairing the ability to deploy liquidity that is otherwise readily available, um, so that's something that we'll be watching and, and being engaging on very closely, just on sort of an operations uh, BCP cyber area. Um, we continue to do a lot of work in the cyberspace we just had our quantum Dawn five our biennial industry-wide exercise that was our first cross-border or global exercise and we're continuing to do a lot of work around um uh with with our regulators and and the treasury and homeland security around you know various resiliency and tabletop exercises uh we're doing work with our global partner the gfma uh around operational resiliency this is something that uh global fora such as FSB and Basel are looking at. The Bank of England is getting ready to put out a proposal that would obviously be in the BOE's jurisdiction, but uh, is something that we think regulators around the globe will look at, which is beyond cyber and more on, on broader operational resiliency that we're involved in. And then I wanna talk a little bit about the consolidated audit trail and, and related large trader, but really the consolidated audit trail, which is, um, An ongoing uh, issue and effort. Um, Our members have been, while our members are compelled to uh, 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 provide transaction uh, data and other customer data to the consolidated audit trail, we have been um, and have been, and and really sort of the guts of the whole thing to the 24 SROs who are charged under the Reagan MS plan to operate. Um, We have continually raised concerns about uh, various data risk under the consolidated audit trail uh, with respect to PII, with respect to transactional data. Um, we're now at, a, at an inflection point where uh, firms are, uh, are, who have been spending tremendous time, effort, and resource on preparing for this are in, a, in, the, in the period of where they're having to begin testing uh, on December 16th in order to be prepared to begin reporting transactional data in April, um, in particular, uh, members express uh, a great concern and frustration with the uh, contractual terms of, of being prepared to test and report, and the uh, and the um, the cap on liability uh, uh, that the SROs are are in effect forcing on the dealers who have to report this this uh, this data. Our members are concerned that. Uh, we are putting customer data, both PII and transactional data at risk uh, where we are being compelled to do so by regulation and yet uh, we we end up holding all the liability uh, most importantly our clients li- our clients' personal information and risk and so this is something that we have been uh, 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 imploring the SEC, and in particular the SROs, that n- this needs to be addressed. Our members are, uh, are compelled to comply with this rule. Our members are doing everything they are being compelled to do, but we are very concerned about what the impact is going to be with respect to our customers, and it's an issue that needs to be resolved. There are a whole lot- host of other components around who has access to this data, uh, the way it's structured right now. All 24 uh, SROs would have access to this data, uh, including many that we have no line of sight into their uh, security protocols, um, and you know, potentially thousands of employees. So this is a major issue of great concern. We've been in regular communication with the SEC and the SROs, but it's something that the firms are very concerned about as we endeavor to get to you know to get this stood up. Let me just very quickly on the um, on, uh, on on on. Uh, uh, sort of legislative uh, and, and other policy areas. Um, on the legislative side, you know, obviously we're eager to see the Secure Act uh, get through the Congress. It passed overwhelmingly in the House. We think there's overwhelming support in the Senate. We see it as a possibility of a bill that could get done at the end of the year as part of a broad appropriations bill. That's a you know, you never know how those things are going to turn out, but we think it can get done. Um, we are. Uh, um, we are, it's not as much legislative, but after legislative you know, uh, uh, actively reviewing the recently re- uh, released Treasury rules with respect to the BEAT provisions, the base erosion provisions under the, under the tax reform bill. Uh, uh, we are hopeful that the uh, Treasury has acknowledged the difference between tra- traditional transac- financial transactions and how the BEAT should address that or not. And we're waiting on the guilty rules to come out um we are pursuing um re- legislation to restore advanced refunding authority for uh uh uh, uh municipal issuers we're encouraged uh with uh, congressman uh ruppesberger from Maryland and congressman stivers from ohio who've introduced a bill in that we're eager to see the senate take this up and we're working on that effort and then in the gse space uh we're not you know well it doesn't appear that there's legislation in the offing uh uh we have been uh Uh, been quite uh, public uh, that as the FHFA takes steps to uh, remove the GSEs from conservatorship, which is a goal I think we all share, uh, that that needs to be done with great caution and coordination with the Congress, particularly with respect to uh, the impact on the TBA and conforming loan market, um, and in our members' view, uh, addressing the issue of the need for an explicit guarantee in order to maintain a TBA conforming loan market. And we can we can talk uh, more about that. And then, lastly, I just say you know, we're very focused on what's happening in the trade sector. Uh, we're eager to see Congress pass the USMCA, which we think is a is a solid proposal that updates uh, NAFTA, uh, addresses some of the digital age issues that we think are important. And then we're watching the China uh, trade issue quite closely. We are encouraged uh, that. Uh, uh, the negotiations it, it seemed to have included now uh, uh, market access issues that have long been we've long been engaged with of allowing uh, uh, U.S. firms and other non-Chinese firms uh, to uh, have majority ownership of, of broker-dealers and 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 uh, asset managers and others in China. So we're encouraged that's part of the negotiations now. Progress have been made with China before on that. And so we're watching that very closely. So that's a lot, let me stop there
1: and, and we can talk about it and turn it over to Joe Sweeney. Thanks Ken and uh, thank you all for, for joining us here today. Uh, I'm pleased to serve as the new chair of SIFMA uh, and I look forward to representing the board at this exciting time for our industry. As Ken noted earlier, the total value of US retirement assets exceeded $34.6 trillion in 2018. As I think about that, I think about the millions of hardworking investors who've put their money into retirement savings vehicles. I think about the plans they've made for the future and the firms that they've put their trust in to help them get them there. Our industry has the amazing opportunity to serve the wide-ranging needs of Americans as they navigate their financial lives. Their lives are changing faster than ever before, and we're changing along with them innovating to serve them when, where, and how they wanna be served. SIFMA plays a pivotal role in helping firms adapt to change and raise the bar on the experience and value we provide to our clients. SIFMA's priorities reflect input from all of our members. And as you know, we have a broad and deep membership of different size firms with different business models operating in different regions. We come together through SIFMA to advocate for effective and resilient capital markets that serve investors. Through information sharing, coordinated exercises, you heard Ken mention Quantum Dawn, which is a powerful example of this, data aggregation and a host of other initiatives, SIFMA helps firms do their best work every day for clients and continuously innovate for the future. That's where my focus will be as chair. We're at a key moment of innovation in terms of technology, advice, products and solutions, cybersecurity and privacy, and critically, diversity and inclusion. Allow me to expand on a few of those themes. The financial services industry is investing heavily in technology to serve the broad and diverse needs of today's investor base. Emerging technologies such as cognitive computing, speech recognition, and artificial intelligence are starting to transform the industry. These tools are being used by firms not only to analyze customer needs for marketing purposes, but also for critical legal and compliance requirements. The client experience is being greatly enhanced by new technology, assisting financial advisors by replacing manual processes such as email check-ins, scheduling, or just a quick reminder to take action. This frees up valuable time for financial advisors to focus on what really counts, helping their clients navigate the investing landscape. The industry is also focused on developing a diverse and skilled workforce to accommodate rapid technological changes and to ensure that the demand for advice will be met in the years to come. In the midst of these great technological advances, there has never been a greater time for financial advice for all investors of all ages, income levels, and backgrounds. Information is plentiful, but it also makes the investing landscape that much more difficult to navigate. Investors will rely upon us for trust and confidence that they need to navigate through the changes ahead and invest their hard-earned savings to reach their long-term goals. Investors benefit greatly from access to advice that is built around their individual needs and goals. Industry studies estimate that professional financial advice can add anywhere from one and a half to 4% to a portfolio return over the long term, enabling customers to better meet their goals. The majority of this increase will come during periods of heightened volatility in the markets. When investors step in and help their clients stay the course, and keep their long-term objectives in sight. It is in this environment that we need to share our expertise and help as many investors as possible. The industry is also adapting its products and solutions to meet the needs of our investors. Serving a broader and more diverse client base means that we need to be nimble and to look ahead to address the unique needs of our clients. The next frontier for client engagement and financial services is the integration of health, well being, and financial planning. Longevity planning enables households to better protect assets, preserve lifestyles, and maintain independence into older age. Longevity planning is also contributing to the protection of at risk seniors by addressing and monitoring issues such as cognitive impairments in a holistic, integrated financial and physical health plan. Another area where the industry is deeply focused is cybersecurity and privacy. As an industry, our top priority must be to keep our clients' financial lives with us safe and secure. With that in mind, we vigilantly monitor the threat landscape and evolve to protect our clients and advisors. CIFMA is actively engaged in coordinating efforts to support a safe, secure information infrastructure with cybersecurity initiatives that ensure the privacy and security of customer information in an efficient, reliable execution of transactions. Underpinning all of this incredible transformation and innovation is our commitment to diversity and inclusion. As we innovate and evolve our businesses, I can tell you that diversity and inclusion is a core focus across the board. It's been a major conversation at every industry event I've attended over the last several years, and I'm certain that it's top of mind for executives, boards of directors and employees at all of our member companies. Firms understand that it's not only the right thing to do, but it's imperative for competitive reasons. Companies that fail to foster and embrace a more diverse and inclusive workforce will lose talent and ultimately clients. There's broad recognition that the industry has more work to do, and we will do it. We believe that the more attention we can bring to this topic, the more likely we are to discover innovative solutions for fostering, maintaining, and growing diverse and inclusive environments within the financial services industry. In closing, I wanna thank you again for the opportunity to join you here today. I look forward to the year ahead and the many exciting developments on the horizon for our industry, and on in the investors we serve.
0: Let's now examine some of the questions we received in our Q&A portion. Here we dig further into the impact of prudential regulations on the capital markets. I think I think the two rules that, that particularly could have an impact are the liquidity coverage ratio and the high quality liquid asset uh, uh, provisions. And, and both those rules are designed to in, enhance uh, short-term bank liquidity uh, by holding uh, holding high quality liquid assets on the balance sheet and and uh, as a result of that there's a concern and this is something that we 've raised in the past, not necessarily with respect to the repo market, but in other instances we've raised with the uh, with, with the regulators that uh, while the intent obviously is a, is, is a positive intent, it could have the impact of where where banks would feel that they need to hoard those types of assets and so we we're, we're not sure, but we think it's something that could be one of the reasons why. Uh, dealers are not going into the market because they feel like they've got to hold assets uh, and and can't deploy that so you know th- this and I, th- I want to be clear this is not a question and and, and has it really been raised this but it, but this is not a question of a um, of a of a lack of capital in the market or or, or on balance sheet, it's more of a question of capital being trapped on the balance sheet unnecessarily. And we think things like the LCR and high quality liquid assets could have an impact on that. So we think that's something that regulators really should take a look at. We also discussed the state fiduciary rules and the ramifications they will have on the investing public, our clients, if they do go into effect. Have engaged with uh, you know the states of Nevada, um, New Jersey, uh, Massachusetts, uh, New York is also considered. Maryland has toyed with it. We 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 testified in, in, in Maryland. They they haven't done anything. Um, our 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 overarching message to all of the states is that first of all, Congress has long, uh, notwithstanding the appropriate role that states have in regulating, uh, you know. Commerce within their within their boundaries. Congress has long has long deemed that the that the capital markets are 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 federal markets, and in, and in many, if in almost every case, have preempted the states. So we have a national market system, and that is you know, and, and frankly, that is uh, uh, a very much a hallmark and a reason why the U.S. markets are as strong as they are. And you go to other jurisdictions, you go north to Canada, you go to Europe, you know, and, and, and across the twenty now twenty-seven states that all, I guess ultimately will make up the European Union, you know. Um, you know, they kind of look at how you could have sort of a pan-European market. In Canada, they're always looking, even though they do it by agreement across the provinces, of how you can have, you know, a national market system. So that, number one, is important. And, and number two, you know, what we suggested to the states is you should, you really need to step back and take a look at Reg BI, and not let this discussion be colored by the fact that, you know, people might think that somehow Reg BI is lacking, uh, because it's not, it is a extremely uh, robust uh, and strict standard that the firms uh, are going to have to comply with, and notwithstanding the fact that most firms have and, and, and will uh, uh, have really operate at a higher standard. And remember, um, certainly among SIFMA members, the, almost all, if not all, are dual registrants, so they are already operating in many instances under a 40-act fiduciary, often for the same client. Uh, because clients have multiple accounts, so um, you know, those standards have already been driven up. And you know, as we've said over and over, FINRA has been actually, you know, long before Reg BI has really been interpreting uh, uh, suitability in a fiduciary manner. And arbitration cases have been brought more, almost. Always on a fiduciary claim, so the world has already kind of gone in that direction anyway. But now we have Reg BI laying over it, which has a lot of strict mandates that the firms are going to have to deal with. And you know, I'll say it once again because it's in it's it's you know, it's in it's in you know, on the text of the of the page of the rule, you know, it is not a disclosure only based rule. Uh, it is much stricter than that, not that, disclosure, that Not that there's anything wrong with disclosure. So we have tried to make clear to states, take a look at that. Look at all of that. Then the last thing I would say is that s- a number of these rules that have been proposed in Nevada, uh, in New Jersey, and in Massachusetts conflict with Reg BI. And what's going to happen and what firms have reported to us is that uh, the rather than and you know rather than create you know multi-state compliance models and take on additional compliance liability they will just go to the the uh, the common denominator which in many cases will be to say we just won't do brokerage in that state and the impact on that which we saw with the now defunct dol rule was that clients will be pushed into more costly, they'll basically have to, they'll have one service they can buy, which in many cases will be buying more services than they wanted, and therefore having to pay more than they wanted to. There's nothing wrong with advisory accounts. Again, all of our, almost all of our members provide is advisory business. It's an important business, but it's not right for every account, and it's not right for every client, and it does cost more because you're buying more, whether you need it or not. Um, so, that's a problem, and in addition how some of these rules have been written, in some cases, they aren't just related to retail brokers, they're also related to institutional brokers, so that's going to create problems in the institutional market. Likewise, it's going to create problems in the municipal bond market, because, if, because you won't be, you know, you'll have an issue if you're an underwriter being able to sell, uh, uh, you know, uh, principal transactions into retail accounts, and that will affect pricing in the bond market. So. There are a whole host of problems with these that we've encouraged regulators to step back and take a look at, but first and foremost, stop and look at what Reg BI is before trying to think about what you, know, what you need to do. Now, I had a meeting with a number of the state regulators yesterday, and you know they obviously have to look at it from the standpoint of, of their own rules and how their rules, just like state laws, how do they comport with federal laws, you see this in the tax area and elsewhere and, and many, of the, many of the state laws are, are currently based on suitability. They should look at, at making sure their laws conform with Reg BI, but to create something that's different from Reg BI is gonna create a patchwork that at the end of the day is gonna come, and we, we believe, to the detriment of the client, uh, and, and that, that doesn't make any sense. Um, with respect to the second question, our members report to us, uh, number one, that they are doing a uh, – members are doing a tremendous amount of work, as we would expect, to um, be ready to comply uh, in June. Uh, the, the members have – and particularly the larger members uh, have hundreds of people who are dedicated solely uh, – within the firms who are dedicated solely to uh, setting up the compliance regimes, education. Uh, protocols, and for their advisors and staff and all of that. Uh, the cost is, you know, certainly approaching the eight-figure uh, number with firms, and so it's a heavy lift. We knew it was going to be a heavy lift, and, you know, that's, that's not to say that, you know, you should feel sorry for anybody. I think what that says is this is a, this is a real deal. This is a this is not some light rule that some of the critics have said this is a very robust rule that the firms have to be prepared to comply with and they're taking the steps to do it Finally we touch on cat specifically what is needed security and privacy wise in the PII space this is something we've been saying for a long time. Number one is to limit, mitigate, and, and eliminate as much of the PII as needs to be collected within the customer database, uh, which is a component of the CAT. Uh, and, and to be fair, the SEC with the SROs has taken some, has taken very positive steps in that direction. That is, that's a cr- very critical component. Number two is to address the liability uh, issue of of who has liability in the event of a of a breach with respect to pii and transactional data um which which under the current uh, uh agreement that firms have to enter into the sros have limited that liability at 500 dollars. so we believe that that means all of the uh uh legal monetary and reputational liability falls directly on the firms when they have to turn over their clients data to you know. To which they're compelled to do, and yet they inherit all the all the liability, and 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 most importantly, it's the clients, right? You know that that if there's a breach and the clients, you know, you know who's who's going to deal with their credit monitoring? Who's going to deal with all of those issues around that? And they're going to look to their they're going to look to their, you know. To their firm that they're dealing with and saying, how can you let this happen? And you say, well, we were required to report it to the CAT by regulation. They're going to say. It was my data, why was it you know, why was it stolen? So we think that needs to be addressed. We think that the, and, and we've had discussions on this for many years. The SEC uh, understands this, but I'm not sure the SROs understand this, that there should be a limitation as to who has access to all the data that the cat collects. It's one thing for an individual SRO, to look at data that occurs on their particular exchange. It's another thing to be able to have access to the data across all of the different exchanges and having access to that. We believe that the transactional, the the bulk of the transactional data and customer database should be contained within a secure environment. And in our view, the only two people, only two entities that should should have access uh, to that data in total are the SEC and FINRA. And then lastly, for purposes of cross-market uh, uh, supervision, as as has largely been done now, should be done in the future, and that should be limited to the SEC and Defendra. So those are really there are some other issues we don't need to get into today, but those are the those are the critical issues. As I said, we're at an inflection point now because the firms have spent a lot of money, time, and effort to get ready for this, because we have to, because it's, a, it's the rule. You know, it's not, it's not discretionary. And we don't have a seat at the table on this. We just we just have to do it. And we have to be ready, uh, you know, to report. It, the, the, the system has been delayed. This was supposed to have been stood up uh, several years ago. It's not delayed because of our members. Our members are, again, we're just compelled. But we're now at an inflection point where testing needs to begin which ideally would begin in uh, next week so that or the week after so that the actual initial transaction reporting can begin in in uh, April. So so this is something we're you know we're talking with the SEC, we're talking with the SROs. We've made, you know, two steps forward, one step back. It's a very big deal that that, that members are very concerned about.
1: And with that, we close out
0: 2019 and look forward to 2020. For all the materials referenced today, including our end-year 2019 Economic Survey, SIFMA Insights, and our 2020 Outlook, Trends in the U.S. Capital Markets, please visit us at www.sifma.org.